Good morning. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're working our way still through the Sermon on the Mount, and things are about to pick up real fast. And uh, about a year ago, probably was, about a year ago, we were talking about church planting back in Simi. And we didn't know anything about this church. We didn't know any of you. We didn't know this church existed. Or at least I didn't. Maybe some other people in our church back in Simi did, but I didn't. And we started talking about church planting because we thought that's maybe what we we're going to do. And we were talking to church planters, people who had done this before. And one of the guys that we talked to said when he was looking to plant a church, he went to different um, churches in the community that he was looking to plant a church in that community. He wanted to know what the churches were like. And, and he said, he said, I went to the church. Each church, I kind of wanted to see what they're doing there. And I looked for three things. I looked first did they ask me to open my bible did they teach me the bible that was the first thing and he said that's that's the the main thing they gotta be opening the bible i i, I want to be taught god's word that was number one secondly he said I, I wanted to see if churches were hospitable if if people were welcoming if people cared about me if they learned my name or, or they invited me back i wanted to see if there was any warmth in the congregation and, uh, and that was really important. And he said, for the third thing he was looking for, he said this. He said, I wanted to see if sitting in that church and listening to that sermon, I wanted to see if the gospel would be preached clear enough that someone who had never heard it before could get saved. I listened. I was listening to him talk about these things, and I heard these things. And I thought, man, those are... Those are that's not all there is to being a healthy church, but those are at least a good starting point. Three very important things. I don't know if you've noticed, but I like explaining a little bit why we do things. I don't know if you noticed, but one of the things I've tried to do is in every sermon, try to explain the gospel. Now, I recognize people come to church because they, maybe they've heard it before, they believe it, and that's why they want to come. I recognize most of the people in this room have repented and trusted in Christ. However, one of the things that I'm committed to is a clear gospel presentation every Sunday. Uh, I got a few reasons for that. First of all, I hope that we just do this so much it becomes so familiar, it's almost like, oh, here goes Eric again. He's preaching the gospel. He's telling us about what Jesus did and how people can be saved. That it becomes so familiar that it's easy for you out at the park, at your job, to just talk about it naturally. You've heard it so many times. You know how to explain it to others. Repetition, they say, is the key to success. And let's hear it again, let's hear it again, let's hear it again, let's learn how to talk about it amongst each other, and then let's go talk about it to the world, right? Let's get the gospel out. So that's a, one of the main reasons. I want to make sure we're preaching the gospel every single Sunday so we get used to talking about it. Secondly, I want you to know that if, I, if you were to say, hey, maybe I should invite my friend to church, which I would recommend, that's a good idea, you would say, I know if I bring my neighbor to church, my unbelieving neighbor, I know for certain they're going to hear how to get saved. I've heard those sad stories of a friend who invites um, their neighbor to church and they bring them in and it's a, it's a sermon and maybe it's even from the Bible, but there's nothing about Christ and how to repent and trust Him for salvation. And that person might have walked out going, okay, I understand a little bit more about the Bible. That's good. But I want people to be saved. So do you. 
And so we're going to try to make sure that every sermon, uh, in, in some way, hopefully won't be canned. I don't want to do that. Uh, I don't want it to be, oh, here it goes, it's the same thing. I want it to be Christ is presented and offered to every person every Sunday. I want that to be clear. But here's the third reason. We need it. The gospel's for Christians, too. Isn't it true that you need to wake up each morning and remember who you once were, but what God in Christ has done for you, not because you were good, but because He is good? Isn't it true that we need to be bolstered up by this amazing reality that God is for us in Christ, and that in Christ all the blessings are given to us. Every spiritual blessing is ours, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And this is something that helps us and fuels us and creates affections for God and it bolsters us forward. And I contend that if we stray from the gospel, and maybe we're very religious and maybe even we're always going through verse by verse, but we get away from talking about Christ's work for us, if we stray from that, you know what happens? We start devising our own religion. Really what begins to happen is we do what the Pharisees did. Man-made religion. Uh, Because in the place of Christ and Christ crucified, we will put something there. And that something will not be Jesus and all his work. And we will put something we invent. And that will end up being rules and rituals and ceremonies and routines that get in the way of true, vibrant, heartfelt devotion to our Lord. And so what we are going to do is preach Christ. Every week, I heard a story about Martin Luther. He was convicted that every Sunday he should preach the gospel. And at one point, one of his uh, congregants came up to him and said, Martin Luther, why do you preach the gospel to us every Sunday? And he quipped back at him. He said, it's because you forget it every week. (laughs) But it's true. I do. I, 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 I only confess. It's not that I go, hmm, what is the gospel again? I don't remember. It's that I wake up and I think. Maybe it's just the gut reaction I have to the new day and I start thinking, I got it. I can face the day. And I forget who I am, that I'm poor in spirit, I have nothing to offer, and I need Christ. Lord, I need you. I need you every hour. I need you. And I forget that God has given me everything I need in Christ. I can forget those things. And we will if we don't preach the gospel. Now, in the text you're in, you guys are in Matthew chapter 5, right? In verse 31, Jesus starts in this sermon to attack man-made religion. Because the Pharisees, as you know, they had studied the law, they had studied the Old Testament Scriptures, and they knew it very well, but they were abusing it because they weren't understanding it rightly. And now in this next section, starting in verse 31, Jesus will do what what he'll, he'll, he'll bring up the Old Testament And in some of the traditions of the Pharisees, he'll hold them up. He says, you will see, or you have said, or you have heard. He holds this up, and then he will say, but I say unto you. Antitheses. He says, you've heard it this way, but here's what I have to say to you. Now, you remember last week, if you were here, that some of the people might have begun to believe that Jesus was abolishing the law, and that's why he had to say in verse 17, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. You say, well, why did people think that Jesus was abolishing the law? Well, the next section we're about to preach on is why. Because Jesus is saying, all that you've heard from the Pharisees, all this stuff that you've heard is actually wrong. 
It's all man-made religion, and i got to clear that away, and i got to show you true religion, true relationship with Christ, true following of the Lord. i got to show you the real deal. And so the people might have thought, is he throwing away the Old Testament? Jesus says, no, I'm going to show you the true intent of the Old Testament. Uh, The Pharisees had walked away from grace. They'd walked away from the free grace of God, and they had begun to believe that they were doing the work of God. They were the interpreters of God's word, and they were the ones that everyone should look to, to know what it meant to follow the Lord. And they had set themselves up in a self-righteous way. And Jesus comes in verse 20, he says, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, which is to say that even the scribes and even the Pharisees don't have enough righteousness to get into heaven. Uh, You need something beyond what they have, and actually you need a categorically different righteousness. The law-keeping righteousness is not the righteousness that gets you into the kingdom. And so Jesus will say, you need a new righteousness, a different righteousness, and then the whole rest of this section, 21 to 48, is him describing what this different righteousness is and how it plays out in the Christian's life. He'll talk about anger. Maybe you have these editorial headings in your Bible. He'll talk about lust. He'll talk about divorce. He'll talk about oaths. He'll talk about retaliation. He'll talk about loving your enemies and hang on to your seats. We're going to try to do all of these this morning. Here we go. Let's start in verse 21. Jesus is beginning to describe the true righteousness, the internal righteousness. And let's read verses 21 and 22. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. The Old Testament scriptures clearly said, you shall not murder. It was one of the commandments, one of the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment to be specific. And the Pharisees had known that law. But what the Pharisees were really good at doing was to take the letter of the law and ignore the spirit of the law. And so they were very narrow in their definition of murder. So murder only means that which you rise up to kill someone. Uh, For whatever reason, you rise up to kill them. That's it. That's all that matters. And so they would ignore the heart attitude of anger that leads to murder. They didn't really care about the heart attitude. Remember, the the Pharisees were very much all about the external righteousness. Remember, they loved the good seats at the synagogue. Remember, they loved to get the honor and the praise of men. That's why they did things. They were so motivated by the praise and the human approval of other people. And so Jesus comes along and he says, hey, you have heard it said, do not murder. That's true. That is what the Old Testament said. But I'm going to up the ante a little bit. I'm going to get not only to the letter of the law, but to the heart of the law. He's not merely talking about murder and if you don't murder anybody, you happen to be off the hook of the law. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Verse 22, everyone who's angry. Everyone, everyone who's angry is liable to judgment. Whoever insults, and this word in Greek would be like calling someone a bonehead or something. It's, it's a word that refers to someone who doesn't have an intellectual capacity. If you call someone uh, a dum-dum, I mean, whatever word you want to put in, a modern English. If you, saw, if you say someone is stupid, someone is, doesn't know anything, uh, the word would be an insult to someone. 
You call them a name. You attack their character. You're going to be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is not merely concerned about murder. Maybe all of you would be able to say, all right, I've never murdered anyone. I'm good. I'm off the hook. And Jesus would say, oh, hang on a second. Anger? How about that? You ever insulted someone to tear down their character? How about that? You ever call anyone a fool and you treat them that way? He's caring about the inward attitude of your heart toward people. And I find this fascinating that Jesus is so out of step with today's society, isn't he? Look at what he says. He brings up hellfire as a motivation for you to put away anger in your life. You know, we are so afraid of hellfire sermons. And Jesus wasn't. And you'll see this through the sermon. He keeps coming up with this idea of hell being a motivation for you to pursue holiness. That's, that's just not what you're going to hear in many places, even in churches. He says, listen, if you go on with anger in your life, you're going to be liable to the hell of fire. Whoa, Jesus, hang on. And what I think he would be getting at is, listen to this, isn't Jesus teaching that your anger is more dangerous than the thing that made you angry? That your own anger in your heart's response of anger is more problematic than whatever problem is making you angry? Jesus doesn't want you to focus on the thing that's making you angry as much as on your own heart. Jesus wants you to be worried about your own angry responses. When you're angry at your spouse, or you're angry at your kid, far more important as you seek to obey the Lord is that you ask yourself, am I understanding the danger of my own anger here? Jesus is saying that the heart that quickly jumps to anger verbally or physically, Jesus is saying that person who is quick to anger has an endangered soul. This is serious stuff. The anger of man is dangerous. Jesus would be saying, I don't really want you to focus so much on whether you murdered someone or not. That, uh, that's a law that's true, that's important, but I want you to even go deeper than that. Let God's word here be a searchlight on your own heart right now. As you think about your own life, are you an angry person? Are you angry at someone right now? Are you angry with people in general and things didn't go your way? Maybe the best thing would not to be going after those people and giving them a piece of your mind, but to bring your anger to God in confession. Look at what Jesus says after that in verse 23. He says, if you're offering, he, he now he wants to highlight even the urgency of this problem that every person has, this anger problem. He wants to get to our hearts. In verse 23, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Go leave your gift. Come to term, or leave your gift there at the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother. And, the, and then come to offer your gift. Go fix the problem. If there's a broken relationship because of anger and you show up to church or you show up to worship 
Jesus would say, no, 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 hang on. I really care about your relationships, and if there's anger that's destroying your relationships, I want you to go be reconciled first. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, he says, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is saying, this is urgent. It's almost like the picture is, if you're walking toward the judge, you're walking toward the court, and in the analogy, I would think that the judge would mean to judgment day before God. We're, we're, we're all together walking to that final day when we will be evaluated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we're walking there, it's as if Jesus says, hey, before you get to judgment day, before make sure the people that you're living life with, make sure you're reconciled. Make sure you're not angry anymore. Make sure that you fixed things. This is urgent. Don't wait. Is there someone that you've been holding a grudge against in anger? That you've been waiting for better days to fix the problem? God's not okay with loud singing and closed eyes and raised hands and open Bibles in the church if all our relationships are broken or all our relationships are flavored by conflict. See, murder is a horrible crime. We all recognize that. But Jesus would say, I think here, that anger is the same species. The anger is the seed. And if anger is undealt with, it will blossom into murder. That this is murder of the heart. And so we have to really sit here and let the word inspect us and we have to ask ourselves hey have i been not really taking my own anger very seriously and writing it off like it's not that big a deal or maybe i don't say anything i just fume or i go quiet or, and since i don't say anything too loudly the anger's only in my heart then it's okay well what we're going to see with each one of these things that jesus brings up is that he aims at the little sins you know, the Pharisees were so about the external sins. And Jesus says, no, I want you to think about the stuff that no one else sees. Think about that. Think about the anger in your heart. Think about being angry. And so he continues this inward uh, spotlight going from anger. And now look with me at verse 27 where he now begins to hit another uh, topic. And he addresses a different commandment in the Old Testament. Look at verse 27. Read it with me. He says, you have heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. Of course, you know that this was the seventh commandment now. He's, he's uh, taking this on, and this is true. The Old Testament did say that you shall not commit adultery. But verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. There it is again, church. He's bringing in hell as a way to instill in us a proper fear of the Lord and a fear of sin. Are you afraid of sin? Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body Go into hell. 
Again, the Pharisees had thought that as long as they're not taking another person's spouse, then they're okay. They're not committing adultery. And they could look all they want and they could fantasize all they want, but it was okay because they weren't doing the law or breaking the law here. They weren't committing adultery in their mind. And of course, Jesus pushes that aside and he says, I want you to know the reality here is that adultery is far more than just that narrow definition. He gets right to the heart. Have you looked lustfully at someone? This is what Jesus is saying. That is adultery. Get down to the very, uh, very heart of things. Now this, friends, is a very big deal, is it not, in our society? This is a huge problem in the world and even in the church things are getting more and more normalized watch movies and you'll see that many of those chick flicks or romantic comedies are celebrating adultery you see these movies where often the the romance is between two people who are already married and they're trying to get together and the movie almost paints it in a fun happy exciting light jesus fights against this idea that the only problem is when you have uh, sexual relations with someone who's not your spouse, he goes much deeper, it's looking, it's thinking, lustful intent. It's the idea that you see someone, it creates a desire in you, and you want to go after someone who's not your spouse. We need to say here that sex is something good that God has created. Let's not forget this, that, that God created a good gift to given, and it was given to people in the covenant of marriage, a man and a wife, to be joined together in what God brings together, let no man separate, and they're made one flesh before the Lord. This is a good gift. It's like fire. Fire in the fireplace, thumbs up, good. Fire outside the fireplace burns the whole place down. It will destroy you. And what Jesus is pointing at is here. It is this not only that you care about just breaking the covenant, but all the thoughts, all the ways that we try to enjoy sexual pleasure outside of the covenant of marriage is playing with fire in a dried out field. It will burn up. It will destroy you. It will ruin you. He cares about you so much that He's not going to allow any sexual immorality among His people. He loves you too much. He doesn't allow you to do anything. He loves you too much. And so He says, no, I won't allow any, I don't even want you to be in your mind. So all these things that the world throws at us, we, we need to be people who are different, who say no. This forbids pornography. You have to be clear in today's culture Not just the stuff you could find on the internet, but stuff on TV now, right? Stuff on billboards now. Stuff even in video games now. Jesus forbidding anything that would excite the mind towards sexual immorality. He wants our thoughts to be pure. Not merely our actions, but our thoughts to be pure. See, listen, the studies about pornography are coming out all the time. With regularity. We know what they do, that pornography alters the brain, pornography splinters families, pornography damages women's self-perception, pornography distorts standards of beauty, pornography tends to addict, get people to be addicts of it, pornography lowers sexual satisfaction, all these things. We know uh, this is all dangerous for us, and and it's funny that the studies are coming about 2,000 years after Jesus said this. It made it very clear. 
He called us to stop this stuff. Don't even think this way. And we know that all these problems and all these dangers of sexual immorality outside of marriage and even sexual morality within marriage, He calls us to purity. We know that this is damaging. We know that there are side effects. We know that this hurts the brain and there's effects and the possibility of STDs and uh, other damaging things to your mind and your brain. We know this is all true, but listen to how Jesus fights this sin. Listen, He, He doesn't say much about the temporal effects that this might have on you the temporal dangers. He is concerned about that day, listen, you stand before the judge. He's concerned about the day that you see Christ in His blazing holiness and you give an account for your life. You stand before Him and His all-seeing eye pierces to your very heart. He's caring again. He brings up hell because He's talking about judgment here. So he says, tear out your eye. Cut off your hand. Because a day is coming you will stand before the King of Kings and you will give an account. And it's better that you lose an eye or you lose a hand than on that day to be found without a Savior and be cast into hell. Jesus, again, loves people too much to act as if there's no hell. He loves people too much to act as if there's no judgment. He loves people, so he needs to tell them the truth. Listen, this sin will result in your condemnation unless you deal with it. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not teaching self-mutilation. People actually in church history have taken it to be that way. And literally, gouge an eye or cut off a hand. People have thought that this is the way. Jesus is not saying that if you're, um, you know, we show up to church and, hey, that guy only has one eye, he must struggle with lust. I mean, he's not saying that that's the way the church should be. This is something that's hyperbole. Jesus is saying something that's provocative. He's saying something that's a little over the top. He's not literally saying, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. He's saying this is so serious. This is such a big deal. This is so important. This is so urgent that I'm going to say something that you won't forget. Gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. Deal with this sin dramatically. Kill kill it immediately. Make sure that there is none of it left. Don't leave any part of it standing. His point is this. He's saying, is the thing you're lusting for, fantasizing about, worth it? What lust is worth hell? Listen, friends, we should feel no shame inconveniencing ourselves in order to protect our hearts. We might feel like we're weird if we have a dumb phone instead of a smartphone. We might feel that we're weird if we make sure our phones don't have internet. We might feel like we're weird or not with the times if we just don't go see certain movies or watch certain shows. Listen, feel no shame. Your soul is on the line. Say no to anything that would provoke you into that sin. If there are relationships in your life that are drawing you away from a spouse and into a form of adultery, even if it's still in your mind, think of what dramatic thing you could do to cut that off immediately. If you keep this as a pet sin, (laughs) you keep it, you're like, eh, it's little, it's not much. It's not going to damage me. Look, it's just a little pet sin. It's cute. That thing's going to grow up and devour you. 
That's why Jesus says, deal dramatically with it. Do you take care of yourself? See, I think one of the points here, implications at least, is that this statement Jesus makes indicates that your spiritual health, hear me, your spiritual health is more important than your physical health. That's why he brings up chopping off hands and gouging out eyes, because your soul's on the line, and that's more important than your body. Did you take care of your body? You made time to eat breakfast this morning? Maybe, maybe you didn't. Hopefully you brushed your teeth. You're taking care of yourself on a regular basis. You take care of your house. Maybe you set up an alarm system. Maybe you lock doors. You clean up around the house. Take care of your life. Can I ask you how, how urgent or how important or how vigilant are you taking care of your soul? Are you watching it carefully? Are you feeding it truth? Are you making sure that there's no way in for intruders of temptation? Jesus is saying, get extreme if you have to. Chop off hands, gouge out eyes if you need to. Do whatever you can to be sure that you're fighting sin. And now he moves on. This is something related. He begins in verse 31 now. He gets to the third uh, antithesis where Jesus is saying this is what you thought or this is what the Old Testament taught and here's what I say to you and in verse 31 look down with me he now talks about divorce says it was also said whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual morality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery Now again, this is what the Jews of the time were doing, is they went back to Deuteronomy 24, and they had all kinds of arguments about the grounds for divorce. What are the right grounds for divorce? Now there's a complex discussion in this text and in Matthew 19, and over the whole idea of divorce and remarriage, and I'm not going to get into all of that, but I want to say that this is what the people were doing at the time. The rabbis were basically scrambling and were preoccupied with the questions of, well, what's a legitimate grounds for divorce? And that was the, the big discussion. They're preoccupied with the idea, well, what, what's legitimate? And many of, some of them would even say, well, if your wife burns dinner, that's a legitimate grounds. You can leave her if she does anything like that. And, and then being so preoccupied with this, Jesus comes and he takes a whole different angle. He says, I'm preoccupied not with the grounds for divorce, but I'm preoccupied with marriage. He, everyone who divorces his wife And then he gives a little bit of a grounds there. But everyone, there's issues going on here. In other words, what Jesus wants, what God wants, is for marriages to last, right? Jesus' main idea, at the risk of oversimplifying, I know, a very complex discussion, I'm going to risk that, but I'm just going to say the the, the main idea that Jesus would say here, I think, is stay married, (laughs) Fight for your marriage. Value marriage. Instead of thinking, and, uh, well, what are all the grounds for divorce? I think Jesus says, no, stay married. Hang in there. Work to improve your relationship. Remember your vows. I think Christians should stand out from the world as being people who keep their vows. As people who keep their promises. They're not looking for loopholes and ways to get out. It's a common in our society to do something called premarital counseling. In fact, right now, Ash and I are meeting with a couple. They're, they're Lord willing, going to be moving here in uh, August or, uh, or at latest October. Kenny and Janine, you'll get to know them. They're getting married in September. 
And we've been meeting, and we'll read a book together, and we'll ask a bunch of questions, and we'll talk about what it is to be married. And, and, and sadly, kind of unfortunately, the way this often works is there's premarital counseling uh, all the way leading up to your marriage, your wedding day, and then you have that great day, and then the real work begins, and then premarital counseling is gone. It's like all the easy part where everyone's excited about marriage, and the, uh, that's when we have the counseling. And then when it gets hard, it's like, no, nope, you're on your own. I hope it's really not that way, but sometimes it can feel that way for a couple that's married. And marriage can be really hard, right? Uh, marriage can be hard with the best of people because sinners committing themselves to lifelong love and relationship, to vows, it's hard with sinners. I don't know about you, but Ashley married a big sinner. Me. And I married a sinner too. We're sinners. We need constant help, constant grace. There's no shame in admitting that marriage is hard. And listen, there should be no shame. No shame at all, church, to get help for your marriage. We don't even have to call it counseling as, as if it is some crisis. We should be proactively seeking marriage help all the time. In fact, it should be kind of a regular talk. If we're Christians, we value marriage. And so one of the ways we talk to each other is about the strength of our marriage and how to help each other keep our marriages strong. This should be normal. Men, if you're married, you should probably have other men in your life that you could get help from. And prayer, and wisdom, and advice. Women, you should get other women in the church if you're married who have also been married. Maybe they're a little older than you. You could talk about these things with. Ashley needs all the help she can get to ma be married to the guy she married. And she has full range to pick from any of you to go seek help, to get prayer, to get wisdom. Now let's be a church that is, it's like an incubator for good marriages. Now, in a fallen world, that means we, at times, we will be in the fight together. But let's be in the fight together for each other's marriages. Amen? This is something we all must be proactive in. Jesus highlights the value of marriage by saying this, what he said about divorce in verses 31 and 32. And now, if anger was the first and lust was the second, those are both dealing with inward heart attitudes. Uh, and then you get to divorce, and that's kind of dealing with your promises. And then you get to oaths, and that kind of fits right in there. So divorce, the promise you make to your spouse, uh, he wants to preserve that. And then Jesus gets to oaths. Look at with me at verse 33. It's another kind of statement about the promises we make. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said, follow me here, it was heard that you said from those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord that which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of our great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What the Old Testament had taught was that you are not supposed to swear and make these promises in the name of God and do it flippantly. Taking the Lord's name in vain. This was outlawed in the Old Testament. And Jesus entered onto the scene with a bunch of rabbis who had figured out a way to get around that. 
And what they had done at that point is, say, all right, we're not going to swear by God's name. Now, I know that's against the law. We're not going to swear by God's name. We're not going to make promises in God's name. But we can swear by other things. We could swear by Jerusalem. Or we could swear by heaven. Or we could swear by earth. And Jesus is saying, okay, hang on. The what you're doing here is all wrong. Because what the, the people had done and what the rabbis had done at this time, as part, remember, of their man-made religion, part of what they did was they made ways where you could say things without really having to keep your word. In, in fact, there was a Jewish law code. You'll find this ridiculous, but it's kind of humorous. One rabbi taught this, that if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound to keep your oath. So if I said to you, uh, by Jerusalem, I'll be there tonight at 7 o'clock. I don't have to be there. I could tell you all I want, that I'm going to be there by Jerusalem, but I'm not going to be there. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, you are bound by your oath. So the rabbi said. And so if I said to you, I swear toward Jerusalem that I'm going to be there tonight at 7 o'clock. I better be there. Because I didn't swear to Jerusalem. Or what's it again? By Jerusalem. I swore toward Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how they remembered all this. It's nuts. But that's man-made religion, isn't it? And so these people, we had all these systems, and the whole point of their systems was to try to get out of keeping their word. And so Jesus comes, he says, all right, you're using oaths in all the wrong way. You're using them all the wrong way. He's not saying the oaths are wrong. God makes promises. Jesus made promises. If you got married, you made a promise. If you got baptized, you made a promise. Every time we take communion, that's a promise we're making to each other. Oaths are part of life. Promises are part of life. But what Jesus is doing here is don't use oaths or don't make promises a way for you to get out of just being a person of an integrity. The modern equivalent would be like, you saying, yeah, I'll be at the church at 10 to, to help in the nursery. And you, you waltz in around 10.45. And someone says, hey, you, you're, you weren't here on time. And you say, well, I didn't sign anything. I didn't sign a contract. Or I didn't make any promises. I just said I would be there. Well, that would be, your word means nothing at that point. Jesus, listen, wants Christians to be people whose word is just as reliable as their signature, whose word is one with integrity. Jesus wants people to have reliable attitudes, characteristics, that we are people that if I say yes, I mean yes. If I say no, I mean no. You can trust me. You can take my word to the bank. We are people, I think Jesus is calling us to, be people of integrity. Truthfulness is really what he's getting at. Are you truth-telling? Again, let's, just, let's examine ourselves here. Do you make promises flippantly? Only to break them flippantly? Do you say things you know aren't true? Do you shade the conversation to put yourself in a favorable light? Do you hide some aspects of the truth so that you look like you're right and the other person's wrong? It's not so much that oaths are evil. Jesus wants truthfulness. 
Do you fudge facts to make a point or to win an argument? Jesus wants God's people to be truth-tellers. The person who always shades every conversation with a little bit of lie or a little bit of deception, what does that say about God who sees that? How does that reflect on who Jesus is? Do you think God sees that stuff? Do you think he cares? What do you think he'll do about it? These are important things. We ought to be truthful. That we might have to say things that damage our own reputation, but we will be truthful. When it comes down to it, we will say what is true. That when you're in the workplace, with family, people will be able to say, that person will tell the truth. Let's talk to them. Moving from here, from this idea of integrity and speaking the truth, he moves on to now retaliation. Look with me in verse 38. Let's, let's read this together again. In verse 38, Jesus is hitting all these things that go right to the heart. And he says in verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you, let him take your tunic and let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus, again, it's quoting an Old Testament passage, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And uh, the intention of this Old Testament passage is important because people often did the wrong interpretation again, and they misapplied this. Uh, If you've read the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth section, and you've thought, what does this teach? Uh, does this teach that if I get punched in the face, I, should go, I get to go punch them back? And if they break my tooth, I get to make sure I get their tooth? And if I got a black eye, I get to go get their, give them a black eye? Uh, that, that wasn't the intent of the Old Testament law. The intent of the Old Testament law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, was to prevent escalating acts of retaliation that would have gone back and forth. Hatfield and McCoys, I mean, think of that. You, you stole my chicken, so I went and killed your cow, and I shot your uncle, so I went and burned down your house. I mean, this, is, this is stuff has happened all throughout history. Is You did this to me, and I got you back, and I got you back, and it, it, it escalates and escalates and escalates until there's all-out war. I mean, this happens in interpersonal relationships. This happens in marriages. This happens in families. This happens between nations. And Jesus is saying, uh, this is is what was taught, that there was actually meant to be, if there was a crime, there was an equal and opposite um, punishment for that crime, and then that was it. No more retaliation, it's done. And that put an end, the Old Testament law was to put an end to any escalating acts of retaliation that kept going up and up and up. That's what the point was. And Jesus comes on the scene, and they had totally lost that point. They had thought that, all right, if someone did something wrong to me, I'm going to go get my pound of flesh on them. That's what they thought that meant. And Jesus is saying, here, listen, verse 39, if, don't resist the one who's evil. That doesn't mean let intruders into your home and let them steal all your money. The word resist means to set yourself against them. 
to set yourself in opposition to them. That means that you set your heart against them, that you hate the one who has done evil to you, that you set your heart against them and that you want to do wrong to them. And so what Jesus is getting at, the, the kind of overall point is Jesus is saying, you shouldn't be a grudge holder if you're a follower of Christ. You shouldn't be one who retaliates as a follower of Christ. You shouldn't be sitting there planning on how to get back at that person who wronged you. Maybe you know this about yourself. Are you a grudge holder? <laughs> Have there been times in your life that you've been holding on to something that someone did to you? Maybe years ago? And you're not letting it go. He says, don't set your heart against the one who's done evil to you. It's part of meekness. You entrust yourself to God, knowing that you will inherit the world. He goes on, if you get slapped in the right cheek, turn them the other also. This isn't physical abuse. Hear this, if you are being physically abused, this is not saying that just let your abuser abuse you. This is not what that's saying. In this culture, to be slapped on the face was to be shamed, to be publicly shamed. And Jesus is saying, if someone shames you in that way, let them shame you again. Don't worry too much about it. Don't set your heart against them. Don't sit there planning how you're going to get them back with your words or with your own retaliation. Don't we all have that inner lawyer who rises up in self-defense? We want to tell other people while they're wrong and we're right. Jesus would say, no, don't retaliate. You don't need to defend yourself in that way. You know, don't resist the one who's evil. Don't go against him. Don't try to hurt him back. If he wants your tunic, give him your cloak. Is he going to make you walk a mile? Go another mile. That's no big deal. In fact, even greater in this next section, verse 43, he's going to say, I want you to love that person. Love your enemy. One application of this text is to ask yourself, are you in the middle of a cold war with someone where there's a grudge being held, where there's anger boiling within, and you're just waiting for the next time, the prime opportunity to strike? Maybe someone hurts you, and you sit there seething. Have you ever done this? You, you after the fact, sit there thinking about what you should have said, and then you go, if I get a chance, I'm going to say that to their face. And Jesus would say, no, 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 no. You don't need to defend your honor. We often say, oh, I deserve better than this. Really? Think about God. Think about how Christ was treated when his enemies attacked him. He entrusted himself to God, the Bible says. Why? So he could bear our sins on the tree. Isn't Christ the perfect example of how to respond to those who are evil? He's the perfect embodiment of this passage. That he was abused, he was whipped, he was mocked, and he silently entrusted himself to God. So he could do good for the people who were beating him and mocking him and hurting him. What a Savior! And we see this even more explained in the next section. Look with me now at this final section where he speaks about love. And you have heard that it was said, verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
Now that hate your enemy wasn't part of the text, even in the Old Testament. That was a rabbinic tradition that came through the ages, that the rabbis thought that you had neighbors, and even the word neighbors, they narrowed down so, so that it only meant the close family members and maybe some close friends, but it certainly didn't mean anyone else. That's why Jesus had to tell the story of the Good, good Samaritan, to tell them who, really, who their neighbor was. But they added this thing, hate your enemy. There was an old uh, manuscript that found some writings of the Pharisees, not from Scripture, but from the Pharisees. Listen to what, they, what, the, what the rules of the Pharisees was. It said this, If a Jew sees a Gentile that has fallen into the sea, by no means go lift him out. For it is written, Thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this man is not thy neighbor. Here, the Pharisees believed that if a Gentile's drowning, let them drown, even if you're right there able to help. Quick tip, don't hire any Pharisees for your pool party. They're not going to be very helpful. It, Jesus would say, no, you, you're redefining neighbor. You're supposed to love your neighbor. And who's your neighbor? It's anyone who's in need. You're not supposed to hate your enemies. And look what Jesus says here, verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love them. Isn't it true, Christians? that it's very easy to slip into this mindset that we are the church, that we have the truth, and that everyone out there is against us, and in some ways that's true, but that we turn our hearts against them. And we see them as our enemies, not as people to be loved anymore. See, Jesus would say, no, see these people who don't know the truth as in great need of love and of prayer. Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus says. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You got enemies? You've been praying for them? Pray for those who persecute you. And why? When you do that, what does it mean? It says, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. When you pray for your enemies, that's showing a little bit of the character of God in you. That God is that way, isn't he? You ever thought about that? God is that way. God loved his enemies. See, the Bible says that in our sin, we have all declared ourselves to be enemies of God. We have all fallen short of his law. We have all, at one point in our lives, rejected his standard. But God loved enemies. And God, in his amazing mercy, reached out to save his enemies in Christ. And so God, in his overflowing, abundant mercy, came in the person of Christ to be treated like a criminal, to be beat up and mocked and thrown on that cross in a scandal. He was God, very God, God incarnate, and he came, and why did he die? To bear the sins of anyone who would trust him. God loves enemies. Did Jesus pray for enemies on that cross? He said, forgive them. How do you treat your enemies? One of the things you ought to be praying for enemies, maybe neighbors, maybe family members, is this prayer, Lord, I want them to get saved. Lord, would you save them? Would you bring them to repentance and trust in Christ? They don't deserve it. Of course they don't deserve it. But that's the point of the gospel. And that's how you show that you're like God. God doesn't only save people who are good enough for him. We act like God's children when we love our enemies. Thieves have a good time hanging out with other thieves. They treat each other nicely. 
You go on a pirate ship, one's going to be mopping the deck, the other's going to be cooking dinner, the other's going to be directing the ship, and all those pirates are going to be working together pretty good to go plunder the next victim. And if we Christians only love one another, people who are like us, we're just like pirates that like other pirates. But what about loving enemies? What about loving people who are unlike us? Now that shows something different than the world knows. When we love people who are not like us, sacrificially, generously, with compassion, we show that we serve a God who loves people who don't deserve it. We act like his children when we love our enemies. God loves all the people. He sends the sun and the rain to fall in all peoples. He loves them in that way. And in the same way, we have to love them as well and love them in the most uh, ultimate ways by pointing them to Christ. Let's finish with this. The final verse of this section, verse 48. It's the second bookend. We were first told that we needed to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, which is something that the Pharisees, you know, they knew the law pretty good. How could I ever have a righteousness like that? And then you get to verse 48. Look at this. Listen, church. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do you respond to that? That Jesus just called you to be perfect. Now, you might try to qualify it and say, well, it just means mature. No, he's saying be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. That is utter perfection. Total perfection. Is your response to merely say, well, everyone makes mistakes, so I don't think I can ever take this literally. Is your response to say, well, God's unfair. He knows that not everyone can be perfect. What does he do in calling everyone to be perfect? I hope, though, you read this and you can say, wow, God cares about me. He cares. He cares about the big things, but he cares about the little things. I hope you see that God is so good that he won't bend his standards for you. God is so good that he won't allow you to have any sin in your life. He's so good that he's not going to say to you ever, oh, just a little sin's okay. He's never going to say that. He's never going to look the other way as you sin and say, no, it's okay, I know your personality is a little different than everyone else's, and so I'm going to give you a pass on that. He doesn't say that. No good father would say, yeah, just a little poison is okay. No good mother would say, yeah, there's a little toxic waste in the food, but that's okay. God is too good. Jesus is too loving to say, there's okay sins in the world. There's small sins. There's respectable sins, and I'll just let you get away with those. He's too good. He calls us to perfection out of love. Listen, church, Jesus knows that every big sin starts small. Floods that can change landscapes and destroy buildings are made up of billions of tiny raindrops. The Grand Canyon erodes one grain at a time. An avalanche is a billion little snowflakes. And all the big blow-ups of sin 
in a person's life started one little heart sin at a time. Sins that no one knew about, sins that were never confessed, sins that were hidden in the heart. Jesus is not going to allow any of us compromise here because he loves us too much. All murder, all adultery, all compromise, all lack of integrity, every disobedience is the blossoming of a billion little unseen sins in the heart. And so let me ask you this. Do you deal with the sins in your heart that no one else knows about? Do you deal with those heart sins that no one sees? Jesus is calling you to full-hearted, deep, pure, genuine obedience. He is calling you to perfect, godlike purity. And your response would, say, would be, hopefully is, God, this is impossible for me. I know my heart. This is impossible to me. And God says, yes, with man it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, all of this is possible. Listen, church, you don't have the resources to live this life. You don't have what it takes. Let's joyfully embrace our finiteness here and our fallenness here and say, I don't have it. I can't do it. But listen, in the gospel, you have everything you need. God fully gives himself to you through Jesus Christ. With every spiritual blessing, he infuses you with the Holy Spirit who empowers you to live this way. And then he promises that one day, this perfection that God calls you to, though in this life will be something you long for and hunger for and thirst for, one day, this will be yours completely in the kingdom. That you will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus should lead us this morning to an overpowering sense of bankruptcy. But at the same time, an uplifting sense of provision. He gives us what we need to live this way. Little by little, inch by inch, we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Our gospel not only saves, it transforms us. We believe we have a gospel that will save and change us. And so we look to Christ. And we deal with all the sins that the Spirit reveals, big and external, and small and inside. Are you fighting for purity like Jesus calls us to? Let's pray. And so, Lord, we are humbled that you would call us to such a high standard of purity. Lord, we're about to sing the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. And Lord, to sing that song after examining our own hearts, it's kind of terrifying that you're a holy God and that you don't ever turn your face away and bend the rules and sweep our sin under the rug. Lord, you're too holy and good to lower the standard. And so we look now to Christ, who is our righteousness. We look to Christ who paid for our sins. We look to Christ 
who is alive and risen from the dead, who stands before the Father as our advocate, we look to him. We thank you that in him we are made right with you, completely forgiven, washed white as snow. Lord, it is this amazing gospel that saves us, that changes us, and Lord, it fuels us. We love you. In Jesus' name.